0: Hi everyone, this is Joe Bianco, co-producer of the Defining Moments podcast. The U.S. has a long history of body product banking. That's the process of collecting, screening, storing, and disseminating bodily products for persons and communities in need. And we've become accustomed to hearing about blood banks, for example, or organ and tissue donation banks, even sperm banks. But have you heard about human milk banks? Relative to other body product banks, public awareness of milk banks seems to be much lower, despite the fact that milk banks predate blood banks and organ procurement by decades. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Jones, who's here to shed light on the complex and fascinating world of human milk banking. Sarah is an assistant professor of organizational communication in the School of Communication Studies at Ohio University. Her research explores the politics of gender and organizations, and how gendered organizing affects access to resources across the community. Sarah's work has been published in peer-reviewed journals, as well as in edited volumes, including *Queer Communication Pedagogy* and *The Routledge Handbook of Communication*. Dr. Jones' um, recent health communications article on milk banks serves as a centerpiece of our conversation today. You can find a link to the article on the Defining Moments Facebook page. Okay, Sarah, it is an honor to have you with us today.
1: Thank you, Joe, for such a generous introduction. Um, it's actually always been a dream of mine to be interviewed uh, on NPR or to be featured on a podcast. So being on Defining Moments from WOUB ticks a little bit of both of those boxes.
0: Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. And I think based on uh, your article, it's going to be a a really interesting episode for our listeners. Mm-hmm. So, Sarah, I'd like to start with your defining moments article that was published in Health Communication. It's mm-hmm. called On Family, Fieldwork, and Liquid Gold. In that article, you talk about the moment in which you first discovered milk banking. Now, for listeners who haven't read the article yet, can you recount that story?
1: Of course. So the article begins with a sort of narrative flashback to the announcement and birth of my youngest sibling when I was 10 years old, uh, making me the oldest of six children, so quite a lot. And the pride that I felt in being the one who was picked to stay home and help with the baby while the other children stayed with our grandmother for a week, kind of allowing us to, to get settled. And so at the beginning of the article... I narrate moments like pouring Mama Diet Coke while she breastfed, uh, warming up a bottle of pumped milk and picking up takeout with my dad. And these are moments that I cherish to this day. And so that narrative flashback is really meant to illustrate just how deeply my formative years were immersed in the practices of, of childcare and taking broadly, like how I was raised with this genuine appreciation for the act of mothering and breastfeeding and how thanks to my mom's work uh, as a veteran labor and delivery nurse topics like pregnancy and birth and breastfeeding were they were so familiar they were unremarkable and yet it would be 15 years before I would discover milk banking uh, hmm. at this point I was a third year doctoral student I was working on my PhD in communication studies at Arizona State University, um, advised by Dr. Sarah Tracy and mentored also by Drs. Laura Ellingson and the late Dan Brower. And so I'm driving home from Trader Joe's and I absent absentmindedly uh, click play on the next episode of, of my then favorite podcast, Reply All from Gimlet Media. And it was episode number 57. It was titled Milk Wanted. I didn't think anything of the title. I shrugged, I pressed play. And then two minutes in, my jaw just dropped. Hmm. Um, In my research and my teaching, even my community work, there's always been this sort of through line, like this, this goal to create spaces of productive discomfort, to witness one another's humanity, to unlearn. And the investigation that was storied in that podcast did just that. So the producer's We're describing how the body product exchange industry, as you said in your introduction, goes beyond organs and blood, even sperm and eggs. You can also donate and bank breast milk, which just Hmm. blew my mind. And that's the process by which mothers with excess breast milk provide that milk to parents with low supply or compromising medical conditions. I remember one of the most astounding parts of the episode was the discussion of the so-called exchange rate, uh, where a mom would meet another mom in a parking lot, one would hand over bags of frozen breast milk, the other might show their thanks by handing back a bottle of champagne. And the producers went on to describe, of course, the the history of milk banks, the benefit they provide, but they said that many who could donate had no idea the opportunity existed, uh, that moms with excess breast milk often dump it not knowing that there might be other moms who need that milk. And so it was this entire world right under my nose. And, and I had no idea. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's also not lost on me. Uh, That I discovered this entire world because of a podcast. So I have a podcast (laughs) to thank for my entire dissertation and that continued line of research. I actually thanked the producers in the acknowledgement section of my Mm -hmm. dissertation. Um, So to be be able to actually share this story on the Defining Moments podcast now is surreal. Like it, it really brings it full circle.
0: Oh, I love the symmetry of that. And I'm hoping that, you know, as your research progresses, we'll have you on, you know, another year or so, Mm -hmm. and we'll be able to continue the story of everything you discover because you've really learned so much about that. So you said, you know, you were raised in a sort of very family-centric and caregiving centric home and uh, by a labor and delivery nurse and then came this fateful moment where uh, a podcast kind of opened your world to something that you just hadn't heard of before mm-hmm. but you've actually made up for lost time back mm-hmm. <laughs> that was back in Arizona and then you immersed yourself in a whole world of milk banking in order to learn everything you could. Um, you described a little bit about what, bank, what milk banking is, but do you want to just tell our readers who may not be familiar with it uh, some of the basics or fundamentals that they should know for context?
1: Of course. So milk banking is a sort of umbrella term for different ways of organizing donor milk, and we can, we can think of it actually along a sort of continuum So on the left end of this continuum, we have what I call formal markets, and those include for-profit and non-profit milk banks. Um, Their main function is to supply donor milk to fragile infants in neonatal intensive care units or NICUs. Uh, In some hospitals, they also send donor milk to cardiovascular intensive care units or pediatric intensive care units. And the difference between for-profit and non-profit milk banks, besides the money, is how they handle the milk. So for-profit milk banks pasteurize and sterilize donor milk. That sterilization does strip the milk of some of those antibodies, but it makes the milk shelf stable, meaning it doesn't require freezing or refrigeration And a lot of hospitals like that. Um, Non-profit milk banks are accredited by the Human Milk Banking Association of North America, or HIMBANA, as you will hear it often called. And they rely on community collection sites to obtain donations. Those banks also pasteurize the donor milk, but they don't sterilize it. So they preserve those critical antibodies, but the milk then has to be stored frozen. Um, If there is any donor milk left over at a nonprofit milk bank after meeting hospitals daily needs it's considered outpatient milk and it's made available to local parents in need at base processing costs which is usually between four to six dollars an ounce and even though this information might be new to a lot of your listeners it's worth noting too that um, the American Academy of P- Pediatrics the UN Children's Fund the WHO they all support the use of pasteurized donor milk when mom's own milk isn't available. Precisely because of breast milk's clinical benefits, especially for babies that are admitted to the NICU, Um, it supports proper growth, oral health. It also is well known to protect against devastating diseases like necrotizing enterocolitis. And there are many reasons actually why mom's own milk might not be available. Things like maternal mortality, uh, premature birth or emergency surgery that delays lactation, or even just conditions like insufficient glandular tissue, which is where the milk-making tissue in the breast isn't well-developed. As of a few years ago, uh, it's estimated that about 75% of NICUs in U.S. hospitals uh, dispense donor milk. So it's quickly becoming the this, this standard of care. Going back to the continuum right? We just talked about the left end and formal markets. Mm-hmm. On the right end, we have what I call informal markets. And those include online marketplaces where breast milk is sold via personal ads, uh, a la Craigslist, what mm-hmm. most of us might think of when we think of breast milk uh, being exchanged. And then what are known as milk sharing networks, these are region specific Facebook groups, essentially. They are run by volunteer admins where parents with excess post offers and parents looking for milk post need. And if uh, they connect up, they decide on a place to meet and exchange that milk. What's unique about milk sharing, and I emphasize the sharing part of it for this reason, is that selling one's breast milk is explicitly prohibited. It's all in favor of altruistic donation and the entire practice is grounded in these values of informed choice and consent. Uh, For example, you should feel comfortable asking a donor what medications she takes or how much coffee she drinks. Some donors will even share the latest readout of their blood work or provide Mm. a comprehensive detailing of their diet just to make the recipient comfortable and know that that milk can be trusted. Um, Now my field work And interviews conducted have focused exclusively on nonprofit milk banks, so part of the formal markets, and those online milk sharing networks, the part of the informal markets. Um, Mother's Milk Bank is one of the largest nonprofit milk banks in the U.S. Eats on Feets and Human Milk for Human Babies are the largest, most active milk sharing networks in the U.S., so you'll hear me reference those several times They're actually the the online milk sharing networks like Human Milk for Human Babies, they're actually the closest thing that we have in modern society to the wet nursing of centuries past. Um, And I should note too that in indigenous communities, this this quote unquote informal way of sharing milk isn't even considered informal. It just is. Hmm. So there are some cultural differences there as well. Um, All of this, I, I think, just goes to show that the milk baking industry is super complicated, in terms of how it's structured, uh, how it affects maternal identity, and, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, and and just how they treat the lactating body. But regardless of which form of milk banking a family or mom might choose to pursue, complications can happen. So like, what about the days where there is not enough milk to meet hospital quotas? What if there's a day where there's no leftovers to sell to parents? Um, do you... As a parent in need live near one of the 27 uh, Himbana milk banks in the US, if you connect with moms online, do you have the time and means of transportation to make that exchange? Is there a donor that lives anywhere near you? Can you claim it fast enough? Hmm. So exploring how healthcare professionals and moms navigate that and make sense of their participation in that system is really important. It's, It's not just interesting and and meaningful, but it could have repercussions for things like industry policy and practice. You know, it could it could change the way we understand things like membership and inequality, or even just the way that we talk about maternal bodies.
2: Hmm
0: This strikes me as being very different from blood banks. You hmm. you don't hear about Facebook or Craigslist networks for donating blood. No. person to person or at least I mm-hmm. hope not <laughs> no um so a whole sort of there's seems like there's a cottage industry around this there's informal networks these are not necessarily new um mm-hmm. it's intriguing that for some cultures it just is mm-hmm. right but milk banking sounds fundamentally different than what what I might think of um you know when I think about blood banks or uh, gene banks or um, sperm banks. Mm-hmm. And can you comment a little bit on that? I mean, you've you've walked us through some of the complexities of milk banks. Why do, why do you think yeah.
2: the,
0: the milk banks have evolved into this sort of decentralized kind of network um, compared to others?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, milk banking is a, a bit more decentralized, to say the least. It, it differs from other body product exchange industries, I would argue in in four important ways. So the first difference just lies in the product itself and the way in which it is obtained. Hmm. So that's a given. The second difference I would say has to do with public knowledge of the industry or resource. And um, I can expand more on this later, but milk banking is far from ubiquitous. Compared to other body product exchange industries, like the ones you mentioned, organ, blood donation, um, those are, are highly publicized. They're encouraged, they are widely considered to be noble pursuits. And in my work, it's become clear that donor milk is not usually known as a pre existing resource. So moms only discovered milk banking existed once they reached this, this sort of tipping point of access or sudden scarcity. And that's fundamentally different from other organizations one might not encounter until a need arises. For example, even if one is not in need of a cancer support group or is unaware that there exists a domestic violence shelter in a particular area, the resource itself, like the fact that those things exist is is still widely familiar. Mm -hmm. But milk banking is a practice across the board is, is little known and, and seldom acknowledged. So that's the second main difference. The third, I would say, has to do with how money operates. <laughs> uh, so, so blood, sperm, egg banking, these comprise multi-billion, that's billion with a B, dollar industries in the hmm. United States. Um, blood banks, for example, are estimated to be about one and a half billion per year in terms of the industry Sperm and egg banks nearly 3 billion. Uh, Renee Almeling's work actually does a, a great job of chronicling how sperm donation has rapidly evolved from what she calls customized production to an industry of mass manufacturing over the last 10 to 15 years. Hmm. But breast milk doesn't comprise, as you said, that same sort of centralized industry. So we see immense variation in how money operates. For profit milk banks for example, are, I mean, as the name suggests, right, they're designed to make a serious profit. So they'll pay moms a dollar-ish per ounce and then charge nearly $20 in markup when it's sold back to the hospitals. So those resources are distributed on on orders and cost. Hmm. Nonprofit milk banks, the milk is a straight donation. So moms are not paid for that donor milk. Um, These milk banks, Distribute that milk based on which NICUs in the area need it most, and they charge just base processing costs. So, between four to $6 per ounce. So, in that sphere, resources are distributed based on need and sometimes cost. The online sale of breast milk via personal ads, of course, that's purely based on cost. And then, with online milk sharing networks, they really challenge all of these arrangements because. With online milk sharing, right, those, those resources are distributed at the community level
2: mm.
1: by the members themselves, completely irrespective of cost. And as I said earlier, selling your breast milk or expecting compensation in any way in those networks is straight up not allowed because at its core, informal milk sharing like this is intended to be altruistic. Uh, so that's the, the third main difference. The fourth and final one, I would say, has to do with regulation. So even though the practice of donating and sharing milk is, though not maybe well known, it's still extensive, that market, if you will, that industry is only lightly regulated by the FDA. So this means that the FDA regulates the composition of human milk-based fortifiers. So those are things that are made by by for-profit milk banks. And the FDA regulates the composition of formula, but they don't regulate how those fortifiers are necessarily distributed. Hmm. They don't regulate the price points set by milk banks or anything related to online milk sharing networks. So nonprofit milk banks and online milk sharing networks, those spaces that I've studied, have responded by by taking the initiative themselves, essentially. Um, Nonprofit milk banks in the US and Canada voluntarily ascribed to this set of extensive member guidelines that were created by the Human Milk Banking Association of North America. And they often implement other safety measures on top of that. Uh, For example, building an ISO-7 certified lab, meaning it's cleaner than any surgical suite, or testing donor milk for marijuana if it is recreationally legal in that state. Hmm. Online milk sharing networks, Whose entire model, right? It's, it's based in principles of informed choice and consent. They've also developed their own strict protocols, and these are front and center. If you visit any of these pages, you, you can't miss it. Human milk for human babies, for example, it's monitored by over 300 volunteer admins to ensure that anyone who doesn't adhere to the group's values or those parameters for milk sharing don't Put others at risk. And these milksharing groups take this extremely seriously. Hmm. They they really rely on the community's like self-sustainability and openness to mitigate that harm. Uh, I recall thinking about this now, I'm I'm recalling Kimberly who's one of the online admins I interviewed, and she talked about how they rely very much on the community to sort of police itself and you know say if if they see something. She said, you know, I remind them constantly, if you see anything out of the ordinary, let me know. Let each other know. If you see someone offering breast milk and then messaging you privately about how much it's going to cost, say something. Hmm. So while scamming attempts have occurred on some of those pages, it is far from common within online milk sharing networks. The same can't be said, of course, for online markets where breast milk is sold. Um, and then if anyone in the milk sharing network is being harassed, that perpetrator's account is very quickly banned. The, the admins I interviewed also were not aware of any reports of illness or disease transmission because of milk sharing in, in their network. And just one last thing I guess I would note there, even though the CDC confirms that very few illnesses are transmitted via breast milk, the FDA still warns very strongly against unscreened donor milk. And Mm -hmm. a couple of the more widely cited studies from the Journal of Pediatrics have found that unscreened donor milk can contain uh, high bacterial growth. But it's worth noting that they specifically looked at milk purchased online, not milk sharing networks. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the dynamics that we see. Um, If if listeners are interested in learning more about body product exchange broadly, I I highly recommend Renee Almaling's 2011 book, Sex sells, that's Cells, that sells with a C, and Kara Swanson's 2014 book, Banking on the Body, are both excellent.
0: It's fascinating. There is a whole world out there that most of us are unaware of, and it sounds like mm-hmm. a very highly organized, value driven world um, that mm-hmm. operates on many levels, but you know, it's not so much in the public eye, as you said, because mm-hmm. most people encounter this based on the need arising rather than sort of more mainstream efforts to advertise mm-hmm. and just educate people about this in case they ever do find mm-hmm. themselves in a situation where they they require breast milk. Mm-hmm. All of what you just said shows that you have an incredible knowledge of this fairly hidden um Hidden world. And I'd like to go back a little bit. You talked about your field research and you talked in the article a lot about what you did after you first heard that podcast that uh, introduced you to the concept of of breast milk banks and you you traveled extensively you scrubbed in and at nick Hughes. you went mm-hmm. anywhere and everywhere to immerse yourself in this world and i think as we all have just heard that those efforts paid off um, yeah. but can you tell us about some of the adventures of uh, you know diving headfirst into field work in this area
1: yeah i i can um... The first thing that comes to mind for me, and I mentioned this in in the article, is the number six hundred and twenty nine. that's that's the number of miles that I drove across the state doing local field work and conducting interviews. I mean that that represents a pretty memorable experience in and of itself. And, you know, I initially totaled up the mileage purely out of curiosity. But I noted that number in the article because it shows, I think, uh, not just the physical, but the temporal extent of data gathering. Um, Wiederhold Wolf, who's an OU alum, actually talks about how, like, geographically moving our bodies can be seen seen as a form of, of data collection. And so, those routes that mm. I drove, uh, you know, also mimicked the trips that moms often make to drop off or pick a donation. Thinking through the the rest of the the sort of mental catalog of. Memorable moments, you know, I'm overwhelmed in a in a good way. I vividly remember during my field site visit to Mother's Milk Bank, and, and that required air travel. That was that was outside of Arizona. Uh, spending an afternoon in their ISO 7 certified lab. I, I got decked out in scrubs. Mm-hmm. I worked alongside this trained team of lab techs to dispense donor milk and get it ready for pasteurization so it could be refrozen and sent off to local NICUs. And You know, typically when when moms pump, when these donors are pumping this milk they're later going to donate, they'll write on the bag of breast milk the time of day that the milk was pumped. So I'm unloading these bags of partially thawed donor milk that were shipped in. I'm about to dispense them into this giant glass flask, and I look down at the time of day written on the bags, 2.30 a.m., 4 a.m., 7 a.m., 4 p.m., 11 p.m., I don't think there was any hour not written on a bag.
2: Mm.
1: And it was all in this, you know, blurred Sharpie from I am sure exhausted, but very dedicated hands. I I also remember like crouching down on my hands and knees next to a chest freezer in the tiny hallway of this lactation support organization where I volunteered. You know, I'm, I'm lifting out armful by armful bags of frozen breast milk that were dropped off by local moms. And I'm carefully arranging them in these insulated FedEx boxes to be shipped to Mother's Milk Bank, where I did my site visit. So there was an interesting kind of full circle happening there. And and then the moms I interviewed, I I remember uh, Loretta, she was a recipient. Uh, she made us she made us tea, and we snacked on macaroons as we talked. And her her daughter, who was the recipient of that donor milk, uh, mm. colored in, in the living room floor. I remember meeting Reagan, who was a donor, for breakfast. We shared avocado toast and, and coffee. I I remember Polly. Polly was the recipient. I, I met her in her living room amidst the absolute chaos that is kids on a Saturday morning. And her husband is making breakfast for the other three young children across the room in this tiny apartment. And Polly and I are straining to hear one another, but really appreciating that moment. Hmm. And then I also remember, and I will wrap up uh, soon after this, but I I remember interviewing Margaret who was in a a women's transitional recovery home where she lived at the time and her telling me how she produced so much milk that not only was she able to donate some, she also nursed multiple babies of other women in the home who struggled with lactation and, and how that helped to heal some of the birth trauma that she herself had experienced uh, mm. And then I'll, I'll I'll forever remember and, and cherish Kimberly, the admin uh, for a milk sharing group I mentioned earlier, who actually came to my dissertation defense, and and joined all of us when we went out for a, a celebratory lunch afterwards. We're we're still in touch to this day. For listeners who are on Instagram, actually, I recommend following uh, Mid Atlantic Milk Bank because they do an incredible job kind of demystifying what milk making is and and spotlighting those who make it possible it's it's very interesting
0: those are those are great stories because you've seen this whole spectrum you've seen it from the organizational perspective you've seen it in ICUs you've been on field sites mm-hmm. but you actually made contact with the actual people involved the people affected mm-hmm. those who donate, those who receive um, so it wasn't an academic exercise anymore and I love, that you sort of uh, dispensed with the whole ivory tower. And here at your dissertation defense, you brought in the very people that Mm -hmm. inspired the scholarship. Yes. I think more of us need to do that in the academy.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. It was... It was incredibly meaningful, and, you know, she made a whole uh, Facebook post about it afterwards, uh, which was so kind, and um, I, I was really moved by that.
0: Hi, folks. This is Joe breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Sarah Jones, Assistant Professor of Organizational Communication at Ohio University. We've been talking this hour about the social and political complexities of human milk banking. For your convenience, we've placed links to recently published articles in health communication on our Facebook page. Okay, back to the conversation. And so going back now, hearing all the work you did, hands-on, all the miles you traveled, <laughs> everything that you've You've um, sort of learned and immersed yourself in. You know, we, I go back to the question you posed in the article.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Your mother was a labor delivery nurse. Mm-hmm. You knew all about prepartum and postpartum care. It was a world you were raised in with, personally with your siblings, mm-hmm. taking care of them. And yet you ask yourself, and not without a certain amount of guilt in the article, how could I have never heard of this? And yeah. you did allude to the fact that there's something about the way um, milk bank knowledge is disseminated is sort of like people kind of have to eke it out and find it based on need. Why do you think, though, that it's not more widely advertised? Why do you think that theres not there aren't more efforts to make it mainstream so that pe- people like yourself who were ripe for the learning of it, mm. wouldn't miss it.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Tracy, who I think has been a Defining Moments guest uh, of, of her own right, uh, and I, we actually have a co-authored article titled Disciplined in, Into Hiding that's coming out in Management Communication Quarterly Any Day Now mm. that addresses this question exactly. And in this article, we argue essentially that that if some industry or organization or practice is hidden, that hiddenness doesn't happen just because some folks don't want to disclose that they're a part of it. Uh, It it doesn't just happen because of lackluster policies or bad PR. That hiddenness can also be attributed to these grand narratives or, or what Foucault would call discourses of power, these narratives that discipline individuals involved, and as a result, obscure the organization or the industry or practice as a whole. And if we think about it, milk banking or milk banks, excuse me, and milk sharing networks don't intentionally try to conceal themselves. And, And why would they, right? Because being hidden doesn't provide any benefit. If anything, it makes things more difficult because the success of milk banking as a whole completely depends on the finite number of lactating moms who also have excess milk and who are also aware of the opportunity and need for donor milk. And its function also depends on the existence of NICUs that also dispense donor milk, and then also on community knowledge so that parents in need can really make use of that resource. So... When we ask this question, you know, why is milk banking, why is this industry hidden despite the fact that the organizations involved wish otherwise? It's because of narratives that stigmatize and discipline the lactating body. Specifically, we argue narratives of filth, suspicion, and inadequacy. Hmm. Take filth, for example. So, women's bodies, especially those that drip and leak, They are often marked as inappropriate or filthy. Hmm. So milk donors and recipients find themselves navigating these subtle and explicit judgments from people in their lives who imply that milk banking is dirty. And so their behavior and language are disciplined in specific ways. Uh, Donors being forced to pump in a dirty storage closet at work, or a spouse being disgusted that their wife's breast milk would go into another baby's body. And then even when moms were supported in their choice to donate or, or seek out donor milk, they knew, they know there's still a force to be resisted because they expect people or expected people to react in a negative way and shame them for it. And, and then there's suspicion. And we see this not just in terms of folks being suspicious of donor intentions, like why would she give that away for free? But also in organizations' treatment of each other, Back in 2018, there was actually a pretty heated public exchange on social media between a nonprofit milk bank and moms in online milk sharing networks, where the milk bank made a post sort of reiterating their commitments to extensive screening and processing, and also distanced themselves from informal markets, saying that although women who sell or share their milk might bear good intentions, The practice of sharing milk informally is dangerous because moms may not understand how to properly collect and store their own milk and so may be complicit in putting fragile infants at inevitable risk for disease and contamination. Well, online milk sharing networks got wind of it and the comments exploded. Hmm. And to be clear, the the problem for for the moms commenting from, from milk sharing groups, it didn't lie in the screening and processing and distribution of the donor milk by nonprofit milk banks at all. Um, Everyone recognizes that nonprofit milk banks are essential for getting donor milk into NICUs to the babies that need it most. Some of the commenters had even donated to both nonprofit milk banks and online milk sharing groups Mm -hmm. themselves. The problem also didn't even lie in the mention of selling milk. So the milk sharing moms who were commenting on this post agreed very strongly that the online sale of milk was suspicious and it was potentially dangerous, the problem, according to the commenters, laid in this misplaced suspicion Mm -hmm. of the maternal body, the the fact that the post conflated milk selling and milk sharing, which are fundamentally different, Mm -hmm. and the way that the language of the post manifested to the milk sharing moms as a form of discipline. Some of these comments even condemned the post for using what they felt were scare tactics, to discourage participation in the longstanding communally rooted practice that is informed milk sharing. And I reference this example, not, not to make any sort of judgment, but just to offer an example of how suspicions can surface amongst milk banking organizations and, and how that could impact overall participation and visibility. And then there's these narratives of inadequacy, right? So moms who struggle with lactation, who need donor milk are often marked as victims of dysfunctional, misbehaving, inadequate bodies. It, it's almost like guilt is this pre-existing condition because their body is being marked by its incapabilities. <laughs> but moms with access who donate their milk are lauded as altruistic heroes. You know, whose whose bodies are sites of the power of motherhood and more than adequate in their capabilities. So taking these together, right? these these narratives of filth and suspicion and inadequacy that circulate in the milk banking industry, we see the, the maternal body being disciplined and we see participation being disciplined and even discouraged. And these narratives hold great power because when a practice is marked as filthy, it's rendered suspect. And when a practice is rendered suspect, It is shrouded or shunned and becomes less visible to others. And that continued lack of visibility then impacts the accessibility of the resource. It reinforces the stigma associated with the practice. And so as a result, right, that potential donor milk is lost. Potential recipients' bodies remain inadequate. And that resource struggles to endure um, because it's undersupplied and underdiscovered.
0: That's fascinating on on so many levels because what you're pointing to is a very sort of cohesive um, set of ideologies in the milk banking and milk sharing uh, community, right? Where Mm -hmm. it's not that profit and non-profit clash. It's not that, you know, informal um, milk sharing networks are fundamentally against other forms of of milk banking or donating, mm-hmm. it seems that everyone's internally on the same page, but what they're up against are these external forces that reflect a more deeply embedded and pervasive narrative about women's bodies, about mm-hmm. mothers, about breastfeeding, and, and in all of the ways that you described. It almost has that sort of effect of stifling our awareness of of these things because we're going to always look away or we're always going to pick up on those subtle or not so subtle ways in which the conversation itself is disciplined or the topic is shameful
2: mm-hmm.
0: or or dirty. And yet we don't hear the discourse on sperm banks as shameful or dirty.
1: No. No, we, we don't. Um, and, and one of the things... That Sarah Tracy and I talk about in the article as well is, you know, if, if discipline is working, if these social forces are, are acting upon the bodies that are involved, it's probably a largely invisible process. And the, the effect is that industry or network or resource being not just hidden, but obscured, you know, as as mm. if by like fog or smoke, it just begins to cloud that picture and has immense community consequence.
0: sounds like it's per- absolutely pervasive. Mm. Hard to know where the, a dominant narrative begins and someone's own thoughts or opinions begin, right? How do you even separate the two when, when we're all steeped in that? Mm. And so I think you've, you've kind of really pointed out why it might be that, that milk banks are not part of the public discourse as much as other banks. And, mm-hmm. and it's really not because they're hiding they're actually mm-hmm. <laughs> they're actually out there in plain sight, um, right. you know, we're blinded to them or they're uh, being being obscured.
2: Mm-hmm. And it
0: says a lot about about society, I guess. It does. Um, I want to shift a little also to the language we use about banks and banking mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. relation to body products. So it sounds like it sounds to me like we've reached a point where the idea of banking blood and now banking milk doesn't seem to make us pause.
2: Mm.
0: But there are some really powerful associations with the idea of banking human products. I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, and and this is where the conversation becomes even more fascinating, I think. So I'll start with a definition, uh, and this comes from Carter and Ray's Foster's work with commodification. So something is commodified whenever the producer of the product experiences alienation from that product. So the body is essentially made anonymous, it it disappears. And so what happens to the maternal body in in this milk banking space versus that space is kind of what I hear you asking. Mm. And- Well, in for-profit milk banks, right, and online marketplaces where breast milk is sold, those who perform the labor disappear. For-profit milk banks like Prolacta Bioscience and uh, Medillac are two. They offer severely undervalued compensation. And they also often employ these, these metaphors of intimacy and maternal goodness to increase supply, which some scholars argue allows, you know, corporate and scientific interests to profit at women's expense. Hmm. In my own document analyses, I discovered one of the most glaring cases. Actually, it it happened in Detroit when Medillac, one of the for-profit milk banks in the U.S., constructed a billboard soliciting donor milk for pay. And the company claimed that they were just trying to, quote, increase the supply of breast milk to urban mothers even though there's no guarantee the milk comes back to that same area. But but critics worried that enticing the area's impoverished communities, which already had low breastfeeding rates, would amount to exploitation. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So the Black Mothers Breastfeeding Association and other local groups actually successfully lobbied to have the billboard removed, taken down completely. Now, in nonprofit milk banks it's a bit different. So the body is is recognized. It doesn't disappear in the same way that it might in for-profit and online networks where milk is sold. So in nonprofit milk banks, commodification is a risk, but it's carefully resisted. Like, even though donors' identities have to remain confidential, their bodies are centralized in other ways. So Mother's Milk Bank, for example, where I did my field site visit, they, they memorialized donors and recipients, you know their, their sacrifices and their triumphs by self-publishing a book titled Milk Stories, hmm. and it featured testimonials and, and photos submitted by families. And in 2018, they actually also, they commissioned what they call an, an Aspen Grove and dedicated it to bereaved donors, to, to moms who donate their breast milk after infant loss. And would you believe the artist who completed the project was herself a formal, um, excuse me, former bereaved donor with that very milk bank. Mm. And so on this uh, aspen tree uh, that was constructed in the milk bank's lobby, there are little gold leaves, little ornaments. And each ornament is made up of two gold leaves connected by a little gold hoop. And one of those leaves is textured like an aspen leaf and the other leaf has the baby's name and birth date imprinted on it. And some of those parents, those bereaved parents, even visit the milk bank from states away to hang their ornament on the tree themselves. So for nonprofit milk banks, that milk is is inscribed as precious medicine that doesn't just save lives, but it honors others. Hmm. And then online milk sharing networks right, where that milk is given as an altruistic donation, they resist commodification even more passionately. Uh, they're, you know, they're mobilizing social media in an intentional, powerful way that really resists this metaphorical association between human bodies and money that's implied in the term milk banks, you know, as, as you mentioned. And the milk sharing community is also, I think, doing something kind of radical, and how it helps moms to process their lactation journeys. You know, across the board, I learned that donating milk helped these moms overcome, you know, those feelings of isolation and early parenthood. And, and they felt a deep sense of peace and gratitude because of the immediate personal connection that was made when they would meet these other moms to, to give them that milk. I became an aunt last year, actually. Hmm. And my sister was able to donate several hundred ounces of her own breast milk to three local moms in her area. And she describes it as, you know, some of the shortest but most impactful experiences of her life because she saw the baby, physically saw the baby who her milk would support. And she could see in the other mom's eyes just how much it meant to be supported like to be able to feed her child in the way that, that she and her spouse wanted, in the way that made sense for them. And Sarah Tracy and I discuss in our, our forthcoming article as well, how this operated for recipients in milk sharing. And, and these milk sharing recipients talked about how the experience being involved in milk sharing helped them rewrite what they had been trained to see as failure the, the fact that they struggled with lactation and how the experience helped them reestablish a loving relationship with their body i love the way uh, charlie who's one of the recipients we quote in the in the article described it she said that you know being a, being able to allow other women to help me feel strong by feeding him was empowering it takes a special person to do that. And it's that sororal network that exists in milk sharing, right? Like it, it, it positions moms, donors, and recipients alike as agents of each other's success. And so, in the context of milk sharing, you know, how it positions uh, itself as a system toward maternal identity and toward those bodies, it's really simple milk is a gift. It's a it's a communal resource and it's a truly life-changing form of sororal support. Hmm.
0: That's really beautiful and um really struck by the gold leaves joined yeah. by a loop and mm-hmm. the idea of bereaved moms donating the milk that they can't use
2: mm-hmm.
0: for their own babies and maybe this is what right. Maybe this is really what sets milk banking aside from other um, body product banking. You you may donate blood. You may never know who that blood goes to. You never know why or how. You could donate someone's organs after mm-hmm. their death, but maybe you'll know that there's someone mm-hmm. out there seeing better because they have a donated donated corneas. But you don't actually get to see that. Mm-hmm. You don't get to participate in that Mm -hmm. and with bereaved moms I would imagine there's now you're you're full of so much whether it's grief or this incoming milk and what do you do with that how do you how do you honor that Mm
1: -hmm. and for your
0: sister even when you have excess milk what does it mean to see the recipients the effects that that has that all seems possible in milk banking and milk sharing in ways that the other types of banks we talked about aren't as feasible.
1: Mm. Yes, abs- absolutely. Yeah, I mean, even for, um, you know, going back to the topic of bereavement, the, the bereaved moms that I spoke with, you know, they talked about how donating breast milk was a way for them to process that grief, mm. uh, that, that that was key, in, in their journey through that grief and, and honoring their child.
2: Hmm. It's
0: therapeutic. And When I think in this conversation, you've also shown us what the field of communication studies has to offer mm. in our understanding of milk banks. You noted in your article that it's mostly um, a phenomenon that's been studied either from a perspective of the legalities of it or medicine or women's studies, Mm -hmm. but it's these stories that are really um, compelling and I think are really unique in what communication can bring to our understanding of milk banks and Mm. these things that are otherwise obscured in plain sight. Right. Right speaking of stories and speaking of communication there's a section in your article that i particularly loved um well there were many i have to i have to confess sarah i loved your defining moments article and again listeners you can find that on our defining moments facebook page but one of the things i really liked about your article was you had interviewed sophia who's the founder of human milk for human babies Mm -hmm. and you transcribed your interviews, you collected qualitative data, you immersed yourself in her story, and her stories were fascinating. And then you did something more with them. You, you sort of interspersed them in what you called a concrete research poem. Mm-hmm. You interspersed them and put the, the data of her story in dialogue with larger societal perceptions of women and motherhood mm-hmm. and breastfeeding. Can you read a little excerpt from that, that kind of interesting research poem that you published in the article?
1: Yeah, of, of course. Um, this excerpt comes from the beginning of the poem. And again, this is um, the story of Sophia, who's the founder of Human Milk for Human Babies, one of the largest online milk sharing networks in the United States. And so the poem begins, it's almost okay now. But 10 years ago, things were different. I was exhausted but confident, learning but proud, sharing the pictures as I fed two little bodies with my own as a way to honor myself and connect with others. I thought, sex in. Photos were removed, accounts banned, and not just me anymore. Our lives as mothers triggering the simplest of algorithms. Pornography. Can you imagine struggling with postpartum depression or anxiety? The exhaustion and isolation that comes from your body experiencing a reality only you can understand. This tool that is mom's one true outlet to remind us that we are not alone. Disciplined. You reestablish your presence only to be marked as fake. Erased. Hey Facebook, breastfeeding is not obscene, we yelled. 250,000 moms across the world, standing in resistance, looking for support. I became the scapegoat. Activism, politics, teaching, it all runs in my family. It's in my blood. My network grew massive. 5,000 friends in 60 days. Hey, I'm in Iowa, one mom wrote. I'm struggling to breastfeed. Do you know a mom near me who could help? American women, Canadian women, Australian women, connecting one mom to another. I could be an activist while still mothering young children at home. It consumed me, finding someone who knew someone who knew someone. Milk to spare? Found someone. Not enough? Found someone. Appropriating social media to edify motherhood, not erase it.
0: Sarah, can you unpack that for us? How you how you patched these together and what the end result kind of demonstrates in terms of the research?
1: Yeah. So, in using concrete research poetry, as you mentioned earlier, I'm drawing on the work of Marcy Meyer, who also drew inspiration from Patricia Levy. And Meyer offers concrete research poetry as this sort of novel creative practice of analyzing data that resists the false dichotomy of science and art and in the defining moments article i I refer to this poem as a patch which is descendant from laura ellingson's concept of, of crystallization where the act of representing our research of articulating our data is accomplished through multiple genres. And a patch is something that goes beyond a mere block quote, you know, as you could hear it involves visual and narrative elements that offer, uh, what, what Meyer calls an aesthetic and evocative interpretation of the data Hmm. that's accessible to the reader. And so patching the essay with poetry, I think, it it gives voice to participants in a way that is perhaps more visible and present and really stands to, as as Meyer says, change the way we think about people and their lives. Hmm. And so those moments shared with Sophia while listening to her story of founding Human Milk for Human Babies, it certainly changed the way I thought about people And their lives, you know, her, her story really elucidates the intentionality that was behind how maternal communities responded to these, I guess what I would call, you know, entangled circumstances of ineffective and effective lactation. So by creating, by engaging concrete research poetry to tell that story, the intention is to offer perhaps a more persuasive really focused description of a series of events that m- centralizes the maternal body essentially to to make visible these lived political conditions that that gave rise to online milk sharing networks mm-hmm. and rereading it even now i i'm astounded mm-hmm. i'm i'm thankful to to have witnessed sophia's story you know the the start of the human milk for human babies network in this way
0: like it's a a really nice way if, as an outsider like myself to learn about data and to experience someone else's data in a way that mm-hmm. actually walks you through it and evokes feeling rather than our conventional way of reporting things in in articles it just makes it visceral it makes it yeah. alive and creative it does the subject a real service mm. I would also like to switch. We're heading toward the end, but I'd like to switch to a couple things. Um, the entire conversation we've had today has been really an ode to an ode to mothering, an ode to um, milk sharing, right, and an ode mm. to families. And you note in the article in health communication that while my love of family. My love for families rivals the love. my love of many things. I have no desire for children of my own. My identity as a child-free woman is my deepest conviction and the truest thing about my sense of self. Mm. So, Sarah, I'm curious why when women choose the identity of being child-free, they're so often asked to explain or justify that choice?
1: Yeah, I I appreciate the way you articulated this question. And I think the best way for me to start is acknowledging pronatalism, which I talk about in the article. Pronatalism literally means pro-birth, and it, it refers to the policy or, or the practice of encouraging people to have children, uh, advocating for an increased birth rate, or, or generally just adhering to arguments about the desirability for a larger population. One of the ways that pronatalism shows up in our speech is when we position womanhood as inextricably linked to motherhood. And those pronatalist discourses are so powerful. They're so pervasive. They are so embedded in societal institutions, even in familial discourses, that it can be really difficult to trace how it influences our own gendered performance and our expectations or judgments of others. In the article, I I draw on Johnson and Quinlan, who remind us that a pronatalist society not only shames those who choose to have a child-free life, a pronatalist society also pities those who are unable to have biological children, Mm. and it fails to support mothers in meaningful ways. Risman is a a scholar who, who also talks about the, quote, seduction of choice, which is when social structures shape our ability to choose by creating a natural performative context that then frames our perceptions of our interests which constrains our choices so the expectation that a woman will become a mother for example is so pervasive it is misconstrued as absent it's not framed as a choice but rather this innocuous certainty Hmm. and risman goes on to argue that that institutions depend on us doing gender in particular ways So even in acts of resistance, those structures can be inescapable and they might push back on us. This is one explanation for for why I think child-free women receive so much pushback, because for so many years, the institutions of marriage and of family depended on women doing gender in particular ways, becoming a mother, for example. So even in acts of resistance... When a woman carefully and confidently determines she does not want children, those structures act back upon us. Hmm. We are are told we are the epitome of selfish, that we will change our mind, that we'll never experience real joy or true love unless we have a child, or even that we'll die alone because there will be no one to take care of us when we're old, which I would be remiss if I didn't point out that children are not an insurance policy Hmm. against loneliness in old age. So in, in short, a woman identifying, much less confidently identifying as child-free, I think is hard for others to reconcile because we as a society default to parenting as the standard and the assumption. I mean, even the way, even the way we compliment young women is grounded in the explicit assumption that she will be. It's you'd make a great mother, not you're a really nurturing soul. Hmm. We don't stop to consider that the person we're complimenting may have zero desire to ever be a mother. We we also don't stop to consider that the person we're complimenting may deeply desire motherhood but has experienced unfathomable loss hmm. or is unable to have a child. And that's how pronatalist discourses trap us. Hmm. Speaking candidly, you know, I, I think sometimes we don't acknowledge how choosing to have a child can be a much bigger decision than choosing to not have one. So there's a reason that I use the term child-free in the article as opposed to childless, which is how we are often labeled. There's also a reason why the free and child-free in the article is italicized. Those linguistic choices are meant to really emphasize this rhetorical shift from a deficit perspective to one that honors the choice to not have children in a, in a more positive way
2: hmm.
1: and one of the things that you know I, I hope this article communicates is that you can be fulfilled without wanting children while adoring and supporting and championing women who do. Hmm. If listeners are interested to learn more, actually, I actually, I recommend Dr. Amy Blackstone's book, uh, Child-Free by Choice. It's an excellent read.
0: Well, I, I can't help but think of the irony of these two social discourses, these two dominant narratives of um, pronatalism encouraging, not encouraging, just expecting all women to be mothers, and then once they are, society looking away from anything related to the acts Mm -hmm. of mothering and breastfeeding and milk sharing. Right. Right. It's very ironic. But you also mentioned, and you rightly noted, that people without children, whether child-free or for other reasons, can have extremely fulfilling and rewarding lives. And I think Mm -hmm. it would be nice to hear a true example of someone who has a very fulfilling life, talk about that. And what I'd like is to ask you if you could read, um, I think, my favorite passage from your Defining Moments article. It's how you end. It's a Mm -hmm. reflection on this journey that hearing about milk banking launched you on. And I was wondering if you could end the podcast by reading that for our listeners.
1: I'd be honored to. But most of all, Time in the field has made me present to the beauty and the mundane. From the basic processes of organizing donor milk that invoke movement and transformation to those childhood experiences I cherished before I could grasp their significance. My research has led me to appreciate my childhood, my siblings and my parents, and especially my mom's work as a labor and delivery nurse even more. It has spurred me to love on those who are realizing their dreams of raising families with children even more. It has cultivated, I think, a more compassionate self. And isn't that the point? So here's to mothers, donors, and recipients alike whose generosity of time and spirit can teach us so much about advocacy, compassion, and solidarity, about how to acknowledge, support, and enable others' choices in mothering, feeding, and community involvement, even if they look different from our own. You know, I I get a bit choked up almost reading that because I really mean it. You know, to, to have the opportunity to share a bit of my family in such an intimate space, to be able to acknowledge and honor them through this work in a way is one of the greatest privileges of my life. And, and to be able to share time and space with other families over the course of this research, you know, to witness these moms' stories and, and have their blessing to share those stories, to make milk banking known is an even greater privilege.
0: Sarah, thank you so much for sharing that with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining Sarah Jones and I for this episode of the Defining Moments podcast. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Gerald's Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Lynn Harder and I are co-producers and Adam Rich is our audio engineer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at D-M-Podcast-W-O-U-B. On our Facebook page, we provide links to Dr. Jones' article published in Health Communication. We hope you'll take the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts.